0: Hello, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 22nd of January 2013, and I'm very pleased to be joined all the way from Arizona in the USA by Corey Brackett, who is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, writer and poet, whose passion over the last 10 years or so has been to educate and empower people to make healthy lifestyle choices, particularly in the area of diet and to alert people to the dangers of the increasing corporate exploitation of our food supply. She was diagnosed in 2002 with multiple sclerosis, and subsequently came to the belief through her researches that a major cause of her symptoms was the artificial sweetener aspartame. And since then, in order to explore this possible connection and to alert others to it, she has created two fascinating documentaries, which you haven't, if you have not seen those, you really do have to go and see those. They are Sweet Misery, A Poisoned World, and Sweet Remedy, The World Reacts, as well as a multimedia memoir, Through the Shadows. So, Corey, thank you very much indeed for joining me on The Mind Renewed.
1: Well, thank you, Julian. I'm glad to be here.
0: That's great. Can you tell me what the weather's like over there? Because it's all snowy here.
1: Well, we had a huge uh, cold front that moved in last week, but now we're finally in typical Arizona weather, which I'm sorry for you to say is warm and sunny.
0: Oh, no. Well, I, I do feel very envious because I'm very cold here at the moment. We've got the heating <laughs> turned up, but uh, it doesn't seem to do any good. <laughs> okay, what I'd like to do with this interview is, um, first of all, I want to ask you about your own experience of being diagnosed with MS. Then the fact that you came to believe aspartame, you'll have to excuse me, I'm a Brit, so I'm bound to say aspartame occasionally rather than aspartame. You came to believe that aspartame played a role in producing these symptoms. And then secondly, I want to ask you about your documentaries and research into this area. So could you first of all tell us a bit more about yourself and what is it that you went through with, with this illness?
1: Well, in 2002 or prior to that, I was living a fairly unconscious life. I didn't really realize anything about health, although at that time I was a vegetarian and thought, oh, I'm going to do something good for my body and didn't really realize what could affect me if I thought consciously that I was doing good for myself. But I was really unconscious and I really wasn't fully aware of the ramifications of what I was ingesting into my body that there was a relation and found out unfortunately that there was a huge relation in 2002 I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and I very quickly degenerated into the point that I was in a wheelchair I couldn't raise my arms over my head I had slurred speech and double vision I had to retreat into myself because that was the only thing left for me to rely on. It was horrible. And at that time, I was just completely flabbergasted and floored. And I was typing 10 words a minute at that time because my arms, my hands weren't working very well. So I really tried to find out what was wrong. And eventually I... Found these rumors on the internet that, gosh, aspartame might be problematic. And at that time, I had been consuming about a six pack a day, which I had done for 20 years, which eventually caused me no shortness of problems that I didn't know was occurring. So I did more and more research. Typing 10 words a minute, which taught me patience, which I needed to have. But eventually I got better and traveled across the country with my husband at the time. We had a video production company, which made it possible for me to do the documentaries. And I interviewed doctors, lawyers and activists and other people who said they had a problem with aspartame. And eventually, I went, whoa, if there's smoke here, there's fire and this is real. This is not an Internet urban legend. This is a problem and realized that this needed to be shared with the world. Mm -hmm. So I made Sweet Misery and then following Sweet Remedy.
0: And presumably you very quickly cut out of your diet aspartame. and, And how quickly did that make a difference to you?
1: It took about three months, during which time I was going through severe withdrawal and problematic symptoms, and I would say fortuitously to me, nobody would say it was fortuitous except for me, I happened to bump my head on the floor and get an egg on my head, which I hadn't seen since childhood, you know, those childhood things, knocks and bruises and bumps that you get when you're a child. I got one of those Mm -hmm. right at the time that I was quitting aspartame and all of the symptoms flooded into me. So I got really, really sick. I couldn't do anything at all. And it was A horrible thing and I was told by my neurologist that I would always be this way but I was determined to not be that way and that was the biggest thing that I learned throughout that entire experience was we can have horrible things happen to us but if we have our mind and our sensibilities and our acceptance of the things that are happening to us But the courage and determination to focus on getting better, that is a powerful thing. And to utilize all of our resources that we have in our mind, no matter what point it's in, to really work to get ourselves better, we can do that.
0: So you employed that determination that you had there to, in your case, you decided that aspartame was the problem, and so you cut that out. Did you cut anything else out of your diet at all? Or was that the one thing which, in your opinion, did actually make that big difference?
1: I believe very fully that it was the biggest thing that made a difference. But also, I cut out cheese, (laughs) which is Uh I don't consider really bad for you, except for the fact that it can really increase your weight. I looked at a menu the other day of what I ate at that time, Everything was like nachos or cheese enchiladas or pizza or mac and cheese. And it was all things (laughs) that were really bad for me, even though I thought I was doing good. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people think that they're eating healthfully if they're like a vegetarian or otherwise, And they're not really subscribing to the whole health mindset
0: so people are playing at it they're not really studying it properly in order to find out what really is the best way to change the diet to make the biggest impact they're just sort of tinkering a little bit and thinking that's gonna be good enough
1: right exactly they're not thinking that the stuff that they put into their mouths will have a direct effect on their health and it really will I'm telling you people, <laughs> it will do that. It will really create a profound effect on your health and an ability to appreciate and experience life. And we don't think of that in this society today. We just think, "Oh, this has vibrant rich colors," or this Looks healthier, so it must be healthier. And we don't realize that it might have genetically modified ingredients or aspartame, and it's packaged to lure the consumer to try that product.
0: Could I turn to the specific subject of your documentaries? And what, um, I'm thinking particularly, of course, of Sweet Misery, which majors on the aspartame question, uh, whereas your other documentary goes into other issues, which I may touch on a little later. Um, one major thing that you say early on in the documentary is that aspartame is made up of three components. It's aspartic acid, uh, phenylalanine, if I've got that correctly pronounced, and methyl ester. Um, And I believe those are in 40%, 50%, 10% amounts. And the 10% methyl ester, I understand, is the the major problem from what you've said and from the experts that you spoke to. But there does seem to be some doubt about the safety of the other two as well. So I'm wondering if you could talk through what these three components are and what the medical concerns are about them.
1: Yeah, aspartic acid and phenylalanine, they're both amino acids, so we would think, oh, well, the body needs amino acids to be able to survive. So they must be good and harmless. But the problem is that they're 50 and 40% respectively of the aspartame molecule. So We're flooding our bodies with two individual amino acids and the body is going, wait, I I thought you were going to give me a fruit or a vegetable that would have a good balance of amino acids that my body could absorb. What are you doing to me? And we're flooding it and our bodies cannot absorb or react in a natural way to those things. So they're harmful in those levels.
0: That's the aspartic acid and the phenylalanine. Those are the two amino acids. Is that right?
1: Yes. And when they're isolated like they are in aspartame and they're, we're feeding our bodies. I mean, I consumed a six-pack of diet soda per day. And now they're actually coming out in the mainstream news that one diet soda a week won't be harmful to you which they never did when I was consuming it. It was like, you can consume as much as you want. There's no problem here. But now they're beginning to realize that that might be a problem. But the biggest problem, I believe, in aspartame is its methanol content, which is the methyl ester you described, which is a poison. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's a real poison. And they shouldn't have it in any food product. And the interesting thing about methanol is all animals are fine with methanol. But we humans had some sort of mutation early on in our development, which caused us to find methanol toxic. We couldn't metabolize and use it as food. So animals don't get the same symptoms that human beings do. And the companies that are out there, the industry, the aspartame industry, use that to their advantage and went, oh well, we took a study of mice and they didn't real they weren't really harmed that badly, so it must be fine. But they were still harmed and they still had to kind of finagle the research studies to make it seem all right
0: and in the case of human beings i don't know what it is with other mammals but with human beings i understand again from your documentary from the experts you spoke to that we metabolize this methyl ester into methanol and then metabolize it into formaldehyde which i understood was a poison
1: Right. That's the main problem with methanol. It floats freely in the body. It's not latched on to anything else. And so it can wreak havoc. And the biggest problem is that it becomes formaldehyde, which I don't like using this term because it sounds too, you know, um.
0: It's sort of sensationalist, do you mean?
1: Yes. Thank you, Julian. (laughs) I appreciate your help. Yeah,
0: but the thing is, you see, you say that, and I, I quite understand why you don't want to do that, because you don't want to seem sensationalist, and that, could, that might seem in some people's eyes to undercut the message that you're bringing. But I've actually got a quote from somebody who, I don't know whether he still does, but he, he worked for the FDA, right? So this is an article I found that appears in Snopes.com, and it's Dr. David G. Hatton who, 2010, he was acting director of the Division of Health Effects Evaluation in the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. Rather a mouthful, but that's who he is or was. And uh, regarding this methyl ester, and this is his quote here, he says, The claim that aspartame ingestion results in the production of methanol, formaldehyde, and formate. These claims are factual. In the gastrointestinal tract, aspartame is hydrolyzed to one of its component materials, methanol, As well as to the two amino acids, this methanol is taken up by the cells of the body and metabolized first to formaldehyde and then to formate. But then he goes on and he says, the levels of ingestion are very modest. In fact, there are other foodstuffs that we ingest that supply as much and sometimes even more methanol, e.g. citrus fruits, juices, tomatoes, tomato juice there are even higher quantities of methanol ingested when we, we have ethanol, you know, when we have our alcoholic drinks. So he's saying, you know, our diet is awash with this anyway, so it doesn't matter. But he is admitting that this formaldehyde is formed in the body.
1: That is wonderful that there's finally an acceptance of methanol being problematic. Unfortunately, he's referring to kind of an industry promulgated myth about fruits, because fruits are bound to something known as pectin. So when they go through our bodies, they are completely inaccessible to our bodies and they pass right through. But in aspartame, it's free methyl alcohol. So the body doesn't know what to do with it. So it becomes ingestible and wreaks havoc with the body.
0: In the film, you noted there were a lot of people who were getting a a very wide range of symptoms, which they attributed, again, to aspartame. Um, Could you just give an idea of the kind of things that, because your symptoms were to do with MS, but it's much wider than that, isn't it, in the population?
1: Yes. There are 92 symptoms that were reported to the FDA as problematic in the early 80s. And it would seem like a lot of people say to me, oh, well, there were 92 symptoms. It couldn't possibly be true because there are just far too many. But the issue is that most of them are neurological in origin, pretty much to do with the brain and spinal cord. So, you know, it makes sense that it would be very prolific. Some of the things that happen are fibromyalgia, Parkinson's disease, lupus, brain tumors, confusion, dizziness, headaches and migraines are the most common problems that they mention.
0: So these are the things which people have complained to the FDA saying that in their opinion, they believe that this is connected to aspartame.
1: Right. Exactly. You know, one of the biggest things that I have experienced and heard from other people is that they're thinking in a fog, which is really fortunate for the aspartame companies. It's a very common thing and it just seems to be a product of aging or, you know, but that is a symptom of aspartame poisoning. (laughs)
0: Am I right in thinking that some pilots have actually said that they've experienced dizziness when they've had soda that's got uh, aspartame in it? Is that right?
1: Yes, it is. And that is quite frightening. But that is a very distinct problem in the aviation industry.
0: You mentioned tumors, brain tumors. Um, and this was again in your documentary. It said that after 1983, when aspartame was allowed in the drink into the drinks market, that within a year there was a significant increase in the incidence of brain tumors. Now, some would say oh, that's an increase in the detection rates. Really, that's not because the the incidence actually increased at all. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, I spoke with Dr. Russell Blaylock, who's an expert in all of this. He wrote the book excitotoxins the taste that kills which is primarily dealing with the amino acid content in aspartame and he says people say that it's just innovations in technology and stuff but it's a real increase it's a real definite increase in brain tumors
0: there was one other thing that was i I can't pronounce this but I'm going to mention it because Dr. Russell Blaylock did mention it. He said that aspartame, one of the things it breaks down into eventually is uh, Diketopeperazine, something like that.
1: Diketopeperazine.
0: Right. I can't say that. <laughs> but uh, he said that this is close to a substance that's known to be a carcinogen.
1: Yes. Specifically a brain tumor causing agent.
0: To your knowledge, is the is the only person who says this, or have you heard this elsewhere?
1: Um, I've heard it elsewhere. I don't remember which doctors have mentioned it to me, but it's considered kind of. We know that daikotopeparazine is a brain tumor causing agent type of verbiage. You know the the way doctors talk.
0: So this is known. Within the industry, it is known that that this is an eventual byproduct of aspartame in the human body.
1: Phenylalanine, I think it is, eventually breaks down into diketopeperazine, which is a known brain tumor-causing agent, is the way I understand it.
0: Well, that is certainly something that I think people should look into.
1: Yeah, I interviewed two people with brain tumors for one for sweet misery and two for sweet remedy so it is a problem
0: okay i want to look at the question yeah you had a quote from robert shapiro the president of searle in 1984 saying that aspartame has been very well studied well let's just hear exactly what he says But the fact is this
1: thing has been carefully studied, repeatedly studied, extensively studied so that, as I said before, the FDA concluded it's one of the most thoroughly tested food additives they've ever seen. And the conclusion is that it's safe.
0: And I've got another quote here just to bring it a little bit more up to date. This is from 1999 and this is the American Council on Science and Health. And they kind of echo this really. So this is their quote. Aspartame known as NutraSweet and Equal is safe. Aspartame is one of the most thoroughly tested substances in the U.S. food supply. Numerous authorities, including the Food and Drug Administration, the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives of the FAO, WHO, the European Community, and the American Medical Association have concluded that aspartame is a safe product, except in the rare cases of, and then they talk about some rare inability some people have to deal with phenylalanine. So the claim is it is thoroughly tested and it's safe. How do you respond to that?
1: Well... The fact of the matter is the FDA, which is considered the quintessential authority for all issues related to the food supply and our drugs, doesn't do research themselves. They have the companies that are trying to produce these drugs or food products into the market to do the research for them. And once you get an organization or company or corporation or whatever to do that, what you're doing is saying, hey, mom, tell me your child is ugly. And of course, no parent is going to do that about their child. No corporation is going to do that about their product. They're going to redo the studies to find that a product is safe. Part of the reason why aspartame was researched so repeatedly was because they couldn't find a study that would make aspartame look safe. That is problematic. And I kept looking at the research and looking at the information. And I found out that, hey, wait a minute, that person went to work for the PR firm of G.D. Searle right after working for the FDA. What is going on here? And the problem is that our whole system is messed up. And once that happens, the faith in the American people gets eventually fed up.
0: Um, I think a lot of people would think that this whole process of working towards acceptance by the FDA would have been a completely scientific process. But from your documentary, it seemed to be some of it was science, but an awful lot of it was politics.
1: It was hugely politics.
0: And it involved the personality of uh, Donald Rumsfeld as being a big figure in pushing this through. Can you explain what his role was in this?
1: Well, he was he was a politician, a political figure in Washington or in Chicago, at least, when he was pulled from that to become the head of G.D. Searle from 1977 till Aspartame's approval. G.D. Searle was the company that first marketed Aspartame for approval. It was failing before Donald Rumsfeld became CEO of the company. But after that, he used his political muscle, I believe, to get the whole thing passed.
0: Um, One aspect about this political business is that a lot of doctors apparently, or you seem to give the impression again in the documentary, that most doctors are not prepared to acknowledge officially anyway that there is even a possible link between aspartame and the ill health of some of their patients. And there was a particular chap that you had in the documentary who, I can't remember what his illness was, but he said something like, well, the, the doctors won't put it on the record, but in private they'll speak to me and they'll say, thank God you're off it, but they won't put that down in writing Why do you think it is then that so many doctors seem – that they won't even acknowledge the possibility that this could be so?
1: Well, I think that a lot of doctors will blindly – I'm not saying all doctors – but a lot of them will blindly take the word of the American Medical Association – and different governmental authoritative bodies to say that something is safe or not, and they believe it without really reading the studies. The doctors that I've known who have read the studies, they go, "Oh, this is problematic." But then you've got the whole political system. That rewards doctors for following and towing the party line, but they abuse and denigrate and punish the doctors that are questioning that. And that should not be our paradigm for scientific discovery. It should be encouraging doctors and scientists to look at the information and honestly proclaim that wait a minute, I discovered something that's wrong here. I need to make it known. But we denigrate those doctors and turn them into supposed quacks. It really becomes a matter of the PR machine, the public relations machine that has become rampant and all authoritative in everything that they do. And it's very difficult to get To the truth. And the people that get to the truth, unfortunately, in this society are not recognized. They're not given accolades or interest in what they're doing or even debate healthy, real debate. The debate is given by the PR machine and the lobbyists.
0: This has led you, actually, hasn't it, to look at other areas as well. You've This is your second documentary about um, GMOs, and you've looked into MSG as well. You've seen these other areas as being influenced by this kind of corporate control that you've been talking about. Do you want to say something about some um, of those other areas that you've started to look into?
1: Well, they're all related, and I'm glad you brought that up, Julian, because it is a pervasive problem in our society today, in Every society around the world, we need to be looking at the facts without influence. And unfortunately, the influence is very strong and it's created by people who are not in the science or interested in the science. They're interested in getting their point of view across. They're getting a lot of money to be able to promulgate their beliefs on society And I've noticed that with GMO foods, with food dyes, with... MSG with a lot of things that have carried over into society that didn't really have a place there. And we don't even really want. We're just fed and told to shut up and deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, the fluoride in our water, which sounds very conspiratorial, but there's getting to be more influence and realization. More studies are being done to show that it's harmful.
0: Yeah, and I've noticed in some of the little articles that I've come across that there's a tendency to call these things, as you say, conspiracies, or to call them hoaxes. So there isn't this willingness to say, well, look, there might be something here worth looking into. Let's consider the arguments, but rather a kind of knee-jerk reaction. No, this is a hoax, and this is a conspiracy. And I just wonder where that's coming from. Do you think a lot of those kinds of reactions are actually funded by the industries themselves?
1: I think a lot of them are, but I think a lot of it has to do with hubris and egocentricity and the the idea that well i've believed this for 30 years it better be right damn it they are dealing with their own lives and their own reputations and they cannot foster another idea that contradicts what they have told dying patients for their entire professional careers i mean Back at the turn of the century, doctors scoffed at a doctor who realized that all of these female patients in the obstetrician department were dying. A lot of women who were giving birth were dying, and they finally, there was this one doctor who came along and said, well, I think we need to wash our hands in between patients. And well, at that time... Doctors were like, why should I have to clean my hands again in between patients? They're already dirty. And they didn't get it. They didn't get the importance of doing that. And they were creating serious problems. And finally, it became accepted that the medical industry and professionals needed to wash their hands before going to another patient. People are very averse to change. We're very slow creatures to move toward progress, toward real progress and innovation.
0: Yes, it's a, it's a very natural kind of reaction, isn't it? I think one of the things that's said about the ideas changing in the world of science, there's a very famous quote about it. I can't remember who said the quote, but something like, a new idea advances at one funeral at a time. It's only when the, the, the older generation actually, you really just cannot change the paradigm. It's gradually got to change those people, that older generation dying off and therefore allowing new people with new ideas to come in. Do you think that's the kind of situation we're facing here?
1: Absolutely. It's a definite problem. We could be so far ahead with science, but we hold back and do that out of egocentricity and stubbornness. And we need to open our minds to realize that, well, maybe what we have learned for 30 years is not what is true and accept that as progress, not as ruining your whole career, because it wouldn't be If you took the courage to say something is maybe not right and just look at it.
0: Although, again, from the documentaries, I do sort of get the impression that actually for a lot of people, if they did stand up, if they were in professional positions within the medical establishment and said, look, I think there's some problem with whatever product it might be, that they would, in fact, lose funding. They would, in fact, lose their positions.
1: Well, that has been the case for a long time. I made Sweet Misery in 2004 and I made Sweet Remedy in 2006. And both of those have been selling continually since I put them out. So they're not by any stretch of the imagination passe or irrelevant. The reason why is because we have not spoken up. I had 12 or 13 interviews for Sweet Misery. I had 50 or 60 interviews for Sweet Remedy because people were beginning to say, oh, I can come out of the closet and speak. And now when I talk to people more often than not, their doctors are realizing that it's not a healthful product.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So there is that openness of mind then in, in the professionals as well now.
1: Yes, it takes a while. And I wish that more professionals, authority figures in our lives would come forth with new information and have the due diligence it takes to realize that, wait, something's wrong with this. Maybe if we did things this way instead of that way, the old way, things would get better in the world. We can change so much. But we don't believe we can or we're stymied or we're frightened. But one thing I have learned is that when I do something from my heart and my brain and my belief system and know that what I'm doing is the truth, it gets to be okay. It might not be easy, but it's okay. And it's even better than okay. It's vibrant and wonderful and the heart is beating in the world. And it's a great feeling when you can confess the world its untruths. Hey, wait a minute. This could be better. Let's make it better.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing I think about what you've done is that you have empowered people. To do that for themselves. I mean, you had an impact on me when I I watched Sweet Misery, and uh, our family's attitude towards this is that we 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 don't have, and we've cut out uh, aspartame in our diet and I avoid it like the plague. Uh, Not because I say I can prove that this is in fact a problem, there's nothing like that, but I think that the case you made in the documentary was persuasive enough for us as a family to say, look, There is possibly a problem here. And if there is, and we don't actually need to consume this product, then why consume it? Obviously, I'm not advising anybody else to do anything at all. You know, that's just our personal decision. But you have, in what you've done, you've helped to empower us making that decision. We don't need this. So if there is even the possibility that there could be a problem, let's not have it.
1: Julian, I am so, so happy to hear you say that. That is the reason why I did the documentary. And I just want to share with people what I have learned to try to help people to avoid them having to experience what I experienced, which was, you know, it was horrible, but I do look at it as a gift because it gave me the strength in myself to find the peace and acceptance Of life in all of its glory or its miseries, perceived miseries, and realize, you know, it's not that bad. Nothing is that bad. You could argue with me until you're blue in the face. But really nothing is all that bad.
0: Okay, can I argue with you about that? (laughs) Just one particular instance. Let's suppose that you're standing in the supermarket and you're at the uh, the soft drinks area and, the, and you're in that aisle there and you're looking at all these bottles and you notice that oh I don't know 80% of them have aspartame in them and then you see a couple of families come down and they're putting these into the shopping basket and their shopping trolleys and obviously you can't say to them look I've proven that there's a problem with this but you you know from your experience that you're very doubtful that it's good for people so how do you feel at that point do you feel this is a possibly a great tragedy here. Even though you've done what you've done, you've produced these documentaries, do you not feel that there is a sadness there, that people are not thinking for themselves, you know, and you're a few feet away from these people who are taking these bottles off the shelf?
1: It does make me sad. My heart hurts for their, their oblivion, but I can only do so much. And everyone if they did what they could do, they can make a huge difference. There are a lot of people that I've talked with who will go to the supermarket and see someone like you just described. I have one woman who bought 10 copies of Sweet Misery at a time, and she would hand a copy to somebody like that at the supermarket, trying to at least say, hey, look, give it another thinking. Consider what you're doing, especially when mothers will put diet soda in the baby bottles and have them drink that. Oh, I'm horrified. But that's what a lot of mothers would do for their children, thinking they were doing good by them because they weren't consuming sugar. But we train our bodies to crave sweets. I mean, that is so obvious to me. I don't know why it's not obvious to everybody else. But we can enjoy a carrot or enjoy, you know, a healthy snack or an orange or something. We don't need to be Filling our bodies with gummy worms and, you know, sugary sodas or diet sodas from the time we're two. We don't need to do that.
0: No, and our minds are sort of taken over really, aren't they, by the advertising world that's constantly saying these are the things that are going to make you happy. Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, one thing I've noticed over here in the UK that uh, this sweet herb that you mentioned in Sweet Misery, which is uh, stevia, which comes from, I believe it comes from a plant that's grown particularly in South America. And uh, this was being recommended as a, as a way of not having to use sugar, but also not having to use artificial sweeteners. And I've noticed in the last year or so here in the UK, some of the supermarkets are actually, have actually got stevia products now, uh, which is a big surprise. Is that making inroads into the States as well?
1: Yeah, it is. We have two products that are making it into the major supermarkets here, but that's Truvia and Purevia. And the only thing I do not like about those two products is that they're made from Coca-Cola Corporation and PepsiCo. And I know that until Coca-Cola and Pepsi came on board with Stevia saying that it was okay, the supermarkets didn't carry any of the products. And what they did with those two products was chemicalize it and patentize it. So the Stevia and Purvia that you get in the supermarket, I don't believe is all that pure. But if you go to a health food store and you get a smaller company's brand it will be probably purer.
0: Yeah, I did notice that it did seem to be very highly processed. When I looked at the details on the back, it it didn't just say crushed stevia leaves. There was <laughs> it was crystal form and it there, there was a uh, quite a lot of detail about it where I thought to myself, I'm not quite sure this is exactly what was described in your documentary.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I've, I mean I y- you see me eating a stevia leaf in sweet remedy. And it does taste wonderful, but I do believe I'm not a chemist and I'm not a doctor, but I do believe that the purest form that you can get something from nature in the better. So I would highly recommend going to health food stores and getting the smaller, lesser known brand of stevia to take.
0: Still, it is hopeful to see that that move has taken place even in the supermarket. So I was certainly very happy to see that and surprised.
1: It is a move in the right direction, just like I don't know in London but or in England, but over here in the States, we're getting organic foods in our supermarkets. And that is a very good thing, especially with something like genetically modified foods, pesticides and herbicides and all of that. They don't have them in organic foods, so we can rest assured, at least a little bit, that they're not quite as toxic as some of the other things we would eat.
0: I'd like to ask um, how people can find out more about this subject, really, because obviously people could go to your work and to your websites, but um, what would you suggest people go to to find out more about the detail of, of the whole controversy over aspartame?
1: Well, look at the studies if you can, and unfortunately, the medical industry has kind of built up a barrier between us and the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, but you can look hard at some of the alternative media that has their mind open a little bit, and some of it you'd have to back up with other information,
0: So it's your conviction then that if people do actually start to dig and look into various alternative uh, websites that they will actually find some decent information about this that's been written by people who actually really do know what they're talking about. So even some medical professionals who will be able to help in this regard. Yes. But how can people find your work? Because I think you have more than one site. Is that right?
1: Well, I have several, but the primary one that people can go to now to find information is SweetRemedyRadio.com, which is all one word. And on that site, I have radio snippets of philosophical thought and medical thought. And I also have some articles that I've written and updates on my radio show, which happens once a month. Where I interview, similar to you, I interview the four thinkers of modern thought, either medical or filmmaking or a lot, a variety of different things. But they're all fairly related. And it's all about thinking on your own and having your own perspective on things.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. It sounds like we're very much coming from the same the same angle on this, that's that's yeah. wonderful. Um, but also your documentaries themselves, how do people get hold of those? Um, to get hold of a good copy, I mean.
1: Those are available on my website, sweetremedyradio.com, or they're also available, and I would highly recommend that people buy one of the copies of my documentary from this source, is mercola.com, which is run by Dr. Mercola. I've interviewed him for Sweet Remedy, He's fully behind my work, and he is a very forward thinker, and he's a DO, and he really cares about uncovering the truth and has a lot of articles that deal with issues of unconventional thinking, like Dr. Brzezinski was recently highlighted on his website, and Dr. Brzezinski has discovered a very successful treatment for cancer, but he had to fight for 15 years with the FDA to get his theories and his treatments approved. And not to be persecuted because they all tried to persecute him very strongly because he wasn't the typical treatments of chemotherapy, radiation and surgery. He had a different idea that was completely denigrated by the Texas Medical Board here in the States and the FDA and other people, but he finally won.
0: That's a very hopeful thing, isn't it, then, for many of these issues that we've been looking at, that eventually it is possible for things to change.
1: Uh Uh-huh, exactly. And that's why it's so important for people, all of us, to stand up and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) The point being that it's so important for all of us to stand up and say, I'm not going to take this anymore. And realize that we have the power collectively. We're so much more powerful than the people who are trying to do all of these things to us. But we consider ourselves powerless, but we're not. What do you think
0: we should do in that respect, then, in in a way to join together? How can we actually do that? We can do that in a kind of conceptual way by listening to things uh, like this or by going to the Internet and reading an article that somebody's written. But in a way, we're still doing that in our compartmentalized way, aren't we, in our own little homes? How can we actually join together to make more of a difference?
1: I think we need to be authentic people. Living from the truth within ourselves that we know deep down in our guts as the truth and to act in whatever way we can, be it a documentary, an article, or talking to your neighbor. Who's watering his plants next door to you and you are saying, hey, buddy, should you be drinking that diet soda right now? Is that really a good idea? I heard something the other day that made me think differently.
0: But it takes a risk, doesn't it? That's one of the great concerns I have about this. You can broach a subject like this and you you know that there's going to be a certain proportion of people who will turn to you and say, ah, that's crazy.
1: Yes, there are going to be some people who are going to look at you and they're going to be clinging to their diet soda with their lives. They're not going to want to talk to you, but there's going to be somebody who says, wow, I never thought about that. I always thought it was safe and they might have mm-hmm. their minds changed by your conversation with them. If you don't respect them, if you try to bluster in and say, well, I'm the great authority, I know everything, their brains are going to shut down. But if you give them a new opportunity to consider everything and respect them enough to make up their own minds, whatever the case may be, some of them will have an open mind and they will consider it. If you can save one life out of ten, Isn't it worth
0: it? Yeah. And in a way, it's almost as if this isn't really about aspartame, is it? We've gone beyond this. You know, if at the end of the day this turns out to be wrong and there actually is nothing wrong with aspartame, I'm not saying that's the case, but if it just does turn out to be the case, it's still the right thing, is it not, for us to question and to say to people, have you really thought about this, irrespective of what the outcome is going to be in the end? Yeah. Because somewhere along the line, There is going to be some product that is a real problem that is considered to be okay at the moment. And if eventually that is shown to be a problem in someone's life, then good has come out of this whole process of questioning. So I see this as being larger than just the question of aspartame.
1: Definitely. In the 1920s, we were having x ray parties where we would have an x ray machine and people would get their feet x rayed just because it was fun. We didn't know that there was a problem with that. We need to allow ourselves to have an open mind to consider that something might not be quite right.
0: Well, Corey Brackett, thank you ever so much for this conversation. It's been a really interesting one, actually. I was expecting it to be interesting, but I didn't think that we were going to quite this sort of philosophical depth that we have done. So it's been, <laughs> it's, been it's been really enjoyable. Thank you ever so much for taking this time to talk with me on The Mind Renewed.
1: Well, thank you, Julian. It's been a pleasure talking with you, too.
0: So I very much hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And just before I close, Corey Brackett has asked me to mention that it is important to bear in mind that neither she nor I are medically trained. We are not medical professionals and therefore nothing that has been said in this podcast should be taken as medical advice in any way, but merely the statement of opinion. So all that remains is for me to say thank you for spending this time with us whenever and wherever you happen to be. You have been listening to The Mind Renewed with me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Corey Brackett. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.